Today's episode is dedicated to my first son, Alexander Samuel Rochard. He was born on February 12th, 2018 at 9.08 p.m., 7 pounds, 19.2 inches. to the Noted Podcast. This is episode 0.9.0, and today I'm joined with Jameson Lopp. Unfortunately, our co-host, Michael Goldstein, was not able to make it today. And uh, Jameson, how are you? Not bad. Uh, been keeping pretty busy. Spent uh, most of this week, actually, at Satoshi Roundtable. Fantastic. And usually I, I start these interviews by going into a uh, the beginning, like when you first got into Bitcoin, but I actually want to start with the opposite now, which because I just saw that you had tweeted out about a, a new rig that you've got, and uh, you were able to sync your full node in, how long was it? Uh, I believe it was 152 minutes. That's astounding, because I think that, I now granted, I've never uh, messed with increasing the DB cache, but just like on uh my own computer i think when i did it it took me a few days at least so um is it okay so at this point what would you say is the bottleneck yeah so you know i was testing a few things um now it's important to note that like i'm on gigabit fiber so a lot of people might be bottlenecked by their uh, bandwidth and their isp I am not really bottled by that anymore. Um, it's probably the, the CPU and the actual uh, disk storage that are going to be the bottleneck. So I maxed out and got like a, a new six core i7 CPU. But I think the more important thing is that I got one of those uh, NVMe, uh, you know, like pure RAM solid state drives that are like 10,000 IOPS per second or maybe 100,000. I don't even know, but they're screaming fast. So I think that plus jacking up the db cache uh i put 32 gigs of ram in it and jacked up the db cache to like 24 gigs but even once you get all the way through the whole sync it's only using maybe around 12 or 13 gigs so uh that's i think about as fast as you can probably sync on consumer hardware right now and what is it storing in the ram when it's doing that initial sync should be pretty much just the utxo set so you know that's what Pretty much all of the the database intensive uh, write operations are just you know deleting UTXOs as they get spent and adding new ones. Gotcha. Um, and so I, I think that the you know this is the noted podcast, so obviously this subject is very apropos. Um, and one of the contentions we saw last year with the scaling debate is on the subject of the initial sync time for nodes uh, and that the fact that technology is advancing so quickly that really we should be increasing the block size limit uh, to keep up with these advances in technology. And uh, what, what you're presenting to us here uh, is a solid case in that direction. Kind of. Uh, this is the you know optimal best case scenario, and so I'm I'm fortunate to live in an area with gigabit speed internet, and I you know have the financial ability to buy a twenty five hundred dollar computer. 
Uh, but, you know, on the, the exact opposite end of that, there's going to be people who are still on pretty slow uh, broadband and are not going to be able to afford anything much more than like a mobile phone or Raspberry Pi. So um, I run both and um, the, the Raspberry Pi nodes are, are struggling right now. So it's, it's good to, you know, get a, a better idea of the entire spectrum. Right. Uh, and it's interesting that, I mean, you got a cutting edge rig for $2,500. Uh, I, th I think we we heard some people saying that you would need to spend ten thousand dollars on a a, uh, a rig for having your gigabyte blocks. Uh, it's it's unclear to me where that ten thousand dollars is going. Well, and and the other thing is when when people say stuff like that, most of the time they're talking about what would be required to stay synced at the tip of the blockchain. They don't think at all about the initial sync time of what happens once you have a year worth of gigabyte blocks. Like, uh, it's going to take you a long time to chew through that, even if you have uh, you know crazy uh, like industrial uh, server that costs you know a hundred thousand dollars and uses you know, highly parallelized uh, CPUs and disks and everything. So maybe the vision is like Amazon has a service where uh, in they ship via shipping container. Uh, all of the data rather than over the uh, public internet. So maybe that's Absolutely. the vision for spinning up a new node is that you get a container delivered. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if you want to get really creative, any sort of uh, transportation mechanism for data is possible here. It doesn't have to be over the internet. And in some cases, it is faster to ship via truck or um, I think that like Google had like a carrier pigeon uh, parody thing they were doing or they were showing like how much bandwidth you could get if, like strap a USB stick to a carrier pigeon or something. So uh, you can get pretty creative with it. Uh, you can even set up a satellite and beam it down from space if you want. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, all right. So let's rewind. Uh, and I think that we've known each other on Twitter since like 2013. Uh, and Sounds this is right. our first time talking with each other. We haven't met in person yet. Uh, I'm sure we will at some point. But um, yeah, so did you initially get into Bitcoin in 2013 or before then? Uh, I was uh, like summer, fall of 2012. Okay. Uh, and what initially like, were you interested in it from the libertarian angle or the technology angle? What, what attracted you to Bitcoin? Uh, it was about 50-50 on the libertarian philosophy and computer science stuff. And, um, you know, I'm sure that I had heard of it a few times before then and just dismissed it. And for some reason, I think it was a Slashdot article, I realized, oh, this thing keeps coming back. And so I started looking into it more and uh, read the white paper and realized that, like, it was just a very different system from anything I'd ever seen before and that it was pretty elegant in the way it was designed. So that was kind of what hooked me and got me started uh, running nodes and, uh, you know, sending my first wire transfer to MT Gox and uh, eventually led to forking Bitcoin Core, creating Satoshi and, you know, trying to offer operational insights to the developers uh, with that. Uh, yeah, you want to get into Satoshi because I think it's a really interesting project and, and shows how much one developer can, can do in this space. Yeah, uh, well, and I think it's interesting because I don't really spend much time on it. Um, you know, I maybe spent 
a few dozen, probably less than 100 hours total on it. And most of that was in those first few months where I was just trying to figure out how Bitcoin Core worked. So uh, Satoshi is pretty simple from a technical standpoint. It's Bitcoin Core plus about 500 lines of instrumentation code. And a few hundred of those are the actual StatsD library. Uh, and then the rest is just scattered throughout the code base whenever an interesting event happens. Maybe a transaction comes in, a block comes in, a peer-to-peer -peer message comes in or goes out. Uh, tracking all of the different events uh, and activities within the node, then I just emit some statistics to StatsD, which is a, a local daemon that runs and aggregates all of those stats up. And then those get stored in a database that is hooked up to a very pretty Grafana uh, dashboard on Statoshi.info. So you get some nice uh, eye candy. And um, basically the idea was that you know Bitcoin, crypto assets, it's all about openness and transparency. And while the code was very open and uh, a lot of the other metrics of like the, the network itself, like the coins and whatnot, were, were pr fairly transparent through other block explorers and other projects, the actual internal operations of the nodes and what they were doing was very opaque. And so I wanted to understand it better. I figured that other developers also wanted to understand it better. And I think it's been fairly successful because a number of Bitcoin developers over the years have referenced stats and graphs from Satoshi, and I think it's helped them make more informed decisions about what needs to be done to the nodes. It's interesting to me that you mentioned that uh, it's taken up so little of your time to maintain, because like once you set up a piece of software correctly, Oftentimes, you can just let it run and it'll keep doing its thing for a long time. But the, the challenge that like, I would imagine in this case is uh, if this is a patch set on top of Bitcoin Core and they are constantly refactoring the underlying code, uh, has it been a challenge to uh, keep up with that and rebase, essentially? Yes, that is where the majority of my time comes in. I, I haven't really been spending a lot of time you know, trying to add more metrics recently unless someone comes to me and says, hey, we really need to have this. And it's easy for me to figure out because quite honestly, I'm not a C++ developer. Um, before I started tinkering with Bitcoin Core, I hadn't done any C++ development in 10 years you know, since I was in college. And even today, I'm very rusty on it. So um, it's still a bit of a pain for me to get in there and make changes and then you know, allow them to actually compile and get the test to pass. But uh, yeah, I would say you know, each major release that comes out, I uh, merge all of the changes since the last release. And, uh, you know, sometimes it takes me an hour to fix those conflicts. Sometimes it takes me an entire afternoon. Um, I think for the 0.15 release, it was more like an entire afternoon because uh, they've been refactoring so much and like splitting out the main.cpp file and moving just code around to make it more modular that uh, it was a real pain. So, you know, from that standpoint, like if you want to talk about like altcoins and their maintainability, you can go out there and look like the vast majority of altcoins are pretty much stuck at the point where they forked off years ago, unless they have a very experienced maintainer who stays on top of it and keeps pulling those changes down. And of course, the more changes you make locally, the harder it becomes as those code bases diverge. Right. And so really, though, if if these altcoins had their consensus critical code that was what differentiated them from Bitcoin in an isolated manner, then they could much more easily keep up. But that would also prevent them from making their own uh, changes that 
really like what's the point of having an altcoin if you're going if you're not going to make your own uh, architectural changes or whatever adding features like Zcash does, uh, which involves touching a lot of different parts of the code base and making those merge conflicts increasingly challenging to reconcile. Um, so then the the other um, let's see, I lost my train of thought. Uh, oh, I wanted to get into your your background because you said that you weren't very familiar with C plus plus. So, uh, what, what what was your development background before getting into the wild world of Bitcoin? So I've been a web developer of sorts ever since I got out of college, and I really started more on the front end uh, with. Uh, design, HTML, C++, or CSS, uh, JavaScript uh, type of stuff, more user-facing, and uh, over the years moved further and further back. So after a couple of years, I started doing more LAMP stack development, and then a few years after that, moved even further back into doing uh, cloud computing, like large data scale uh, processing with Hadoop clusters and other highly parallelized uh, type of software. Because I was working for an email marketing company that was sending out 100 million emails a day and then ingesting just a ton of analytics that you know the customers wanted to get analyzed in as close to real time as possible. And it... It was never really a passion of mine, but it provided a lot of interesting technical uh, scaling challenges. And uh, so that led me to be a primarily Java developer. And then once I went uh, full-time at BitGo three years ago, I was uh, lucky enough that their in infrastructure indexing services were also Java and Bitcoin J based. And so I've pretty much stuck to Java for the past three years as well. They've also uh, been doing a bit of Node.js uh, and a little bit of Go. Awesome. Uh, so you mentioned you joined BitGo three years ago. And um, do you want to describe like what BitGo does uh, and what the vision for the company is um, in broad terms? Yeah, so Bitco doesn't get a ton of press or recognition um, in the sort of mainstream consumer crypto space, and that's because we're really an enterprise-focused company. So our our customers tend to be large uh, services that have to operate hot wallets. So that tends to be exchanges and payment processors and uh, anyone who is receiving or sending fairly significant volumes of, of crypto that have to be automated. Because security, of course, is one of the top concerns in this space. If you screw up, there's nobody to, to save you. And if you need the ultimate security, it's very simple. You just take all your private keys and take them off the internet. You've got your cold storage, so you've now pulled all of your security concerns into the realm of physical security, which is a fairly well understood problem. But if you have to have automated uh, withdrawals, then you've got a hot wallet that is running code somewhere on the internet that some hacker could potentially get into and screw with the code and cause you to automatically send a transaction to them and now all your money is gone. So the way that BitGo operates, we provide a multi-signature security model where instead of just having a single private key on your computer that's signing the transactions, there's instead three different keys. 
and you have one key on your server, BitGo has one key on our servers, and then you keep a third key either stored offline yourself or stored offline with another third party, uh, which is basically a recovery mechanism. Now, when you want to make a transaction, you're gonna create the transaction and half sign it on your end and then send it to BitGo. And BitGo will have to look at all of your recent activity, look at various security policies that we've set up, that you set up, and decide whether or not to co-sign that transaction. And until we co-sign the transaction, it's not valid because all of the wallets are two out of three multi-sig. So if anything is wrong, then all we do is nothing and we alert the user and say, hey, you need to go check your wallet. Uh, you might have a policy violation. But if everything's fine, we co-sign it, it becomes a valid transaction, and we broadcast it out onto the network, and hopefully it gets confirmed in a timely manner if our fee estimation and UTXO selection and all the other stuff worked out well. Fascinating. Uh, and so does, does a BitGo customer, they have, their UTXOs are essentially segregated, right? It's not like yeah. Coinbase where all, you know, it's kind of a layer above. Yeah, so uh, Bitco is non-custodial, so each time someone creates a wallet, they have their own UTXO set for that wallet, and nobody can mess with those UTXOs uh, unless you know you use two out of the three private keys in that setup. And it's it's an interesting model from a regulatory perspective as well, because it means that we're not a financial services provider; we are just a software service provider, and it's also interesting in the sense that um, if a hacker gets into the user's computer, then there's not enough private key data for them to steal the money. If a hacker gets into BitGo servers, there's not enough private key data for them to steal from our, our users. And even better, if BitGo ceases to exist for any reason, you don't lose anything, you just go get your recovery key and we have uh, open source software that you can use to create a transaction without ever talking to our servers. So you can just route around us. And does this use the standard Bitcoin Network's uh, multi-sig uh, feature or is this something else? Yeah, this is a two out of three uh, P2SH. Okay. Um, and so that's interesting because essentially the the customer is not custodial, you know, assuming that their backup is put away and you're not. Um, and I think that it, it's funny because it, it just reminds me of the Bitcoin network in terms of decentralization, where uh, because it's decentralized, no single entity is a money transmitter. Um, you know, like some people might argue that like, oh, the miners are money transmitters and thus should be yep. regulated. We kind of mm -hmm. saw like crazy statements like that. Um, and we even uh, now we're hearing this about lightning, right, where people are like, yeah. oh, lightning nodes are uh, money transmitters. Um, but it it gets to the fact that, like, one of the cynical uh, views on Bitcoin is that it's a form of regulatory arbitrage. Uh, by being decentralized, you can avoid these labels that come with a lot of um, government imposed regulations. Uh, and. Bitcoin, like, you know, people, you'll see politicians being like, hey, we need to regulate Bitcoin. Uh, and then they realize, oh, wait, it's not so simple. <laughs> um, They'll learn yeah. eventually. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned, though, that, uh, you know, you're a software company. And yet 
recently we saw that you guys acquired a financial services company. Uh, do you want to describe uh, that transaction? And uh, I don't know if there was kind of a public like vision put out for why why that transaction occurred or if you're allowed to speak to that. But uh, curious. Um, I don't think that we've done any huge like press releases regarding the long-term vision, but I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious, you know, we raised a series B of something like $43 million and, uh, we then used some amount of that. I don't even know how much to purchase uh, kingdom trust and kingdom trust is actually one of our larger customers. We've been working with them for a number of years. They run the Bitcoin IRA and they have something like $12 billion worth of crypto assets uh, that they are a custodian of on behalf of people who want to hold uh, various crypto assets inside of their tax-advantaged retirement account. And the, the main reason for this is that you know, we do see a, a shift in interest in the ecosystem where a lot of institutional investors are becoming more interested in crypto assets, but, and this is um, highly ironic, I believe, I don't know if the irony is lost on them, but due to various regulations around uh, like financial compliance uh, in, in the way that these institutional investors and various funds operate, is that there has to be a qualified custodian of assets in order for the investors to hold the assets or more specifically, the custodian holds the assets for the investors. And so basically, we were having to pass up a lot of deals from these type of uh, institutions and clients because we were not a custodian. And even if we were technically a custodian, we were not, uh, you know, falling under the like financially compliant, you know, regulated custodian model. And I know we, we looked into a number of different things and like trying to set up trusts and all of that. And at the end of the day, uh, the most efficient way for us to be able to acquire that status was to just acquire Kingdom Trust or some other entity that was already, you know, reputable and uh, licensed and, and basically performing those services. So we're just folding them under the arm of BitGo and we're going to continue to expand our offerings um, into the custodial front, but we are by no means becoming a like fully custodial company. We'll continue to operate, you know, hot wallets for people in a non-custodial fashion. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I think that it's it speaks to the increasing realization that crypto, but even Bitcoin specifically, is a long-term investment, and it's kind of it's caused I think a bit of a philosophical rift within the community. Uh, because whenever people talk about Bitcoin as an investment, uh, there's always at least one comment that's like, guys, this can't grow. This Bitcoin can't, uh, you know, it appeal to more people if people are not spending their Bitcoins and, you know, using their Bitcoins so that they can buy goods and services. Um, is, is, what's your view on that, like, uh, tension between hodling and... Uh, using quote-unquote bitcoin yeah i mean well first of all hodling is using uh so that's one of the big disconnects but it's been interesting especially you know as we've had so many bubbles over the years and the exchange rate keeps going up by orders of magnitude 
And, and sometimes I try to look back on it and think, like, why do I still have almost all of my coins? Like, I didn't, I didn't sell any crypto assets before this past year in 2017. And the only ones I sold were all of these altcoin airdrops so that I could just buy, you know, get more bitcoins from those. Um, of course, that resulted in me having a big tax bill, which is not fun. But um, I... I can see why, you know, some people are in situations where they need to have a you know, censorship resistant form of money or they, they need to be able to make uh, payments globally quickly without going through traditional systems. But I think the vast majority of people that I meet and talk to don't really fall into that camp. Like almost everybody I, I know and talk to has credit cards and they can do wire transfers and use Venmo and PayPal and blah, blah, blah. And you know, for the vast majority of their day-to-day -day transactions, it's fine for them to use those systems. Like I, I don't think I need to worry about, uh, you know, Visa, uh, canceling my payment to Amazon for buying some books or software or whatever. Uh, so, like, personally, I see the majority of the utility and value in these systems is in holding my wealth in a, a fashion that is not confiscatable by anyone. And this has actually become even more clear to me over the past few months as I was going through the process of selling these forks and converting them into bitcoins and converting a fair amount into dollars to pay the tax bill because I ended up spending well over several days in aggregate uh, in December trying to get dollars from all these different exchanges into my bank accounts so that I could pay the IRS. And I had problems at Coinbase and GDAX and Kraken and Gemini. It's like every exchange, as soon as I started to try to use the traditional financial system again, was just screwing with me and made my life a lot harder. It would have been, and I hate to say this, but my life would have been much easier if I could have just sent a crypto asset to the IRS. And, you know, I think that the person who would hate to hear that uh, is Roger Ver, uh, yeah. who is essentially uh, through through his activism uh, providing more funds to the IRS as people have to pay taxes <laughs> on on uh, his quote unquote airdrop. <laughs> uh, so, all right, and so um, I I think that we've heard of other companies trying to get into the like institutional custodian game. Like I think the Coinbase uh, launched a product where. To sign up, you have to pay a hundred grand, which to me is just that's the market, right? If that and that indicates how much demand there is for this, uh, for this kind of product, and um, so, but at the same time, like back in two thousand fourteen, I feel like I would always hear, uh, "This is the year of Wall Street. This is the year that like you know big institutions are going to start buying." Uh, or this is the year that an ETF comes out. And those narratives always seem to get pushed back uh, six months uh, or a year. And uh, the flip side is that I've these are concrete steps towards that. And um, it seems to be getting more and more realistic. Yeah, I think that, you know, 2018 really will be the year of the institutional investor getting in. And the main reason that I say that is that anecdotally, 
I have started to get contacted by wealth management firms and and all kinds of institutional uh, investors who they they want uh, basically to fast forward on the Bitcoin crypto education, uh, you know, and so they're willing to, to pay me a premium for my knowledge dump uh, to, to help them get a better understanding of this without spending months and months trying to understand, uh, you know, the entire history of how we got here. Uh, and it's, it's funny to me that, you know, it's so political, right? Because if they ask you for a knowledge dump, it's going to be a very different knowledge dump than if they asked someone who works at R3 or, you know, who's really like in the, oh, it's blockchain technology, not Bitcoin or distributed ledger technology. And I, I, cause I was listening to a podcast uh, put out by Goldman Sachs this morning. And the lady was saying that, oh, Bitcoin and the current generation of cryptocurrencies, they're inherently flawed because they're too volatile and uh, they are not mediums of exchange. They're not stores of value because they just went down by 60% uh, and no one's using them as a unit of account. And so, uh, you know, we're, we think that the value is going to drift towards zero over the long run. And uh, I, 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 I like, obviously, you know, I was uh, raging, but um, it, it did provoke some of my own tweeting. Uh, and the, so the, someone who has that let's call it an economic ideology, uh, they're going to have like a very hard time having a conversation with people who are in our camp. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, a lot of these calls that I've been having are interesting because they're basically blind calls where it's myself and a uh, coordinator who understands the space somewhat well enough to come up with some good questions. And, and we basically have a conversation and I don't even know who the various investors are. You know, there, there's like a hundred people just listening passively to this conversation. So, you know, I'm sure that they are getting a diverse set of opinions and doing these type of, of uh, listening conference calls with uh, all kinds of different perspectives. But, you know, if we can get at least a few of them to understand, uh, our perspective, I, I think, will we'll capture their attention. Uh, and I think that the most interesting question that gets posed uh, by investor types is, what do you see as the biggest weakness for Bitcoin? Like, what is Bitcoin's Achilles heel? Uh, and mm -hmm. I would be really interested in hearing your answer for, for that one. Well, I mean, the, the biggest weakness is apathy. Um, if, if people lose interest, that is how Bitcoin dies. And th that's also why I think that it's incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to kill a crypto asset that is de decentralized by any fashion. I mean, you only need to have a handful of people that are interested enough in one of these protocols to, to run the nodes and secure them in some manner of consensus. And, and you have a quote unquote working crypto asset. Now then, you know, the sort of range of what working really means can vary widely. But um, as, it, as long as there are a sufficient number of people who are devoting their resources to continually maintaining and improving the systems, I don't see how it can die. Um, if, if a problem comes up, then we fix it and move on. And that's where a lot of the anti-fragility of these systems comes into play, where the system 
Uh, it could crash. Uh, you could have a market crash. It could have a technical crash where the network goes down. But the anti-fragility is due to all of the different actors who make up the system who then come together and say, okay, we, we make this tweak and we bring it back online. And that's uh, something where I think I said recently of, you know, uh, the network might uh, take a nap for a little while, but uh, eventually it's going to come back and the, the heartbeat of, you know, blocks and transactions coming in will resume. Right, right. And I, I think that when I got this question, my answer was that it really would be, I, I was, you're thinking of it at a meta level, which I think is the right approach to uh to, to reasoning about what would actually be a problem for Bitcoin. Um, and I was kind of thinking of it a little too concretely in that my answer was that, well, if, if a government controls their internet, uh, then they could conceivably uh, block Bitcoin and have a firewall of sorts that prevents uh, Bitcoin from... Um, you know, being a viable, like granted, uh, someone could always use a satellite dish. Although even that I was thinking like, couldn't a government be flying drones over and making sure that your satellite dish is not pointed at Blockstream satellite? Uh, I mean, I'm sure they can jam, uh, you know, signals of different frequencies. Um, you know, there probably is a, a decent point to be made that, you know, the Bitcoin protocol itself, like the message passing is not encrypted. It is, you know, clear text. Uh, I mean, technically, it's like highly compressed, you know, binary, uh, but uh, it could be very easily, you know, sniffed and filtered and blocked. And uh, that's why I guess you can make a strong argument for you know small blocks and, and compact blockchain size because that makes it easier to use other forms of uh, more privacy uh, available uh, communication you know like a tor so uh, if you wanted to uh, you know run a blockchain with 100 megabyte blocks or gigabyte blocks over tor that's probably not going to be feasible but at least now uh, with the current uh, block size and block weight uh, you can still do that. Right. Uh, and on that note, like what, what do you see as what, what excites you about Bitcoin in 2018? I think it's, uh, it's all going to be about lightning and laps and, uh, actually like connecting all of these decentralized networks together. So, um, you know, the, the ecosystem has grown significantly over the past few years. There's far more crypto assets than anyone can even possibly keep track of. But we still have some systemic uh, issues, um, mainly, you know, these centralized exchanges, which uh, we had a pretty good run for a little while where there weren't any major exchange hacks. But now we seem to have another wave of exchange hacks coming in, probably just as more new entrants are coming into crypto starting exchanges and failing to learn from their predecessors. So I'm, I'm interested in, you know, decentralized exchange protocols and atomic swapping uh, for privacy reasons and also for like health of the crypto ecosystem, basically because if you're just using software and a protocol to have economic exchanges and changing assets and trading with other people peer to peer, then you've removed these um, honeypots that 
you know everybody puts their money into and attracts all the attention from hackers and results in a lot of people losing money due to one really stupid exploit that you know somebody accidentally put in and uh if you're just doing it in a decentralized fashion, sure, you might get hacked, but if you get hacked, it's not like everybody else also gets hacked. So I think it, it makes things more robust, and it it also is just going to smooth uh, the process of exchanging. So um, even from a, not a security level, but just a scalability level, a lot of exchanges have had problems with their multiple orders of magnitude of growth in the exchanges have been falling over or just been so slow that they're unusable and you can't even trade on them. And that's just once again because they're centralized and everybody's going into one little point. So I think that you'll also see you know, fewer types of, of congestion there if you're able to actually do your trades across a more decentralized network. Yeah, my hang-up with decentralized exchanges has always been the fiat interface, which seems to rely on like me giving my bank info to someone so that they can go deposit cash in, in my account, uh, which and that aspect of it doesn't seem particularly scalable to me. But in terms of crypto to crypto there, I, I can see that that's definitely much more uh, robust. Yeah, and maybe we'll see a, a rise of a, a stable coin that can be used on these networks. Um, you know, Tether has been a hot topic recently. Um, there's, you know, there's no reason, I guess, why you couldn't have a, a Lightning Network compatible Tether. Now, of course, like any of these stable coins that are you know, ultimately backed by fiat are going to have a trusted third party single point of failure at some point. But you could at least, you know, um, create this gateway where people can use that single trusted point to get into a crypto system where you have uh, you know more liquidity and you're just able to move around a lot faster without permission from everyone. So when I saw you tweet about decentralized exchanges, I, I thought to myself, well, is that's interesting because aren't BitGo's most, you know, most of their customers are, are exchanges like uh, you, I don't want to get you into hot water or anything, but it seems like uh, you're, you're suggesting that um, Bico would be obsoleted somehow because now we don't need these big honeypots with uh, a bunch of coins that need to be secured. Yeah, I mean, I think the ecosystem is going to continue to change in a number of different ways and people are going to adapt and... Uh, you know, some of these exchanges are going to innovate and they're going to find out ways to to pull these technologies in and make their exchange even better and, you know, probably offer hybrid models. But, um, you know, BitGo, uh, we have been pretty good about uh, staying on the forefront of, of innovation in this space. We got, uh, you know, SegWit at active on our platform within a few weeks of it being activated on the network and uh you know we are big fans of payment channel technology so we've got a team of guys that are are working on various ways that we could use payment channels both internal to bitgo and eventually of course external with uh lightning network compatibility so uh the the general idea, I guess, of BitGo is that 
we're going to serve whatever market demand there is. And so while, you know, Bitco did start out as a Bitcoin only uh, thing, you know, as we got a lot of exchanges coming onto our platform and then the exchanges were basically saying, hey, we, we want this same security model for coins X, Y, and Z. We were like, okay, you know, we'll do the work and we'll add those. And uh, that's a lot of how we got to where we are today. And now it's more turned into like Ethereum and, you know, adding support for all these different tokens. And, you know, hopefully in 2018, it'll be Lightning Network and adding support for various types of applications on there. So it's going to be a fast moving space. Yeah, and it's a, a Lightning Network use case that I've heard of that rang as being particularly useful to me is the inter-exchange arbitrage uh, where you would be able to instantly send Bitcoins from one exchange to another, uh, whereas currently it's kind of a, um, it, it can be a haphazard process, especially when the mempool gets backed up. You don't really know how long you're going to be in limbo for. Yeah, there's been a number of products, you know, just targeting nothing more than uh, arbitrage. You know, we've, you, that's really what Blockstream's uh, liquid sidechain is about. And uh, I, I learned at Satoshi Roundtable that is the main reason why Tether came about, is that it was, um, well, Tether was created, you know, on MasterCoin slash Omni. And it was then actually Bitfenix that was like, you know what, we have a lot of traders who would love to use some sort of dollar-backed coin in order to be able to arbitrage between exchanges because we're having a lot of banking problems. And um, you can see, if you read any of these things about Tether, that it was, in fact, serving a very big market. And the market grew to be so big that there's something like $2 billion worth of Tether now that have been issued. Wow. That's and so they're like everyone obviously is concerned about. I think the the going theory is that tethers get printed to pump up the price of Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, kind of like uh, I think back in 2013. Uh, well, we only found out about it after the fact, but this thing called Willy Bot on uh, Mt. Gox that uh, supposedly was pumping up the price. Um, so there's always kind of a a manipulation narrative in every uh, Bitcoin uh, run-up that we see. Um, and so I, I guess, like, what, what are your thoughts on that? And I, I know that things were said at the Satoshi Roundtable that uh, seem to be reassuring in that regard. Yeah, so the, the simple explanation for why so many tethers came about was, like I said, they were being used for arbitrage. And basically, the process is that um, traders on Bitfenix who want to arbitrage will sell their Bitcoins for the USDT, the Tether, and then send that to another exchange and then buy crypto on that exchange and actually you know, benefit from the arbitrage. When they do that, they're sending Tether out of Bitfinex's Tether wallet to the Tether wallet on another exchange. So the balance in Bitfinex's Tether wallet goes down. And as more and more traders do that, eventually the balance reaches a critical level where they're not going to be able to do any more withdrawals. And so at that point, Bitfinex sends actual dollars to the bank account of Tether Inc. 
and Tether Inc. then goes through a process to issue more tethers, at which point they send those to Bitfinex's Tether wallet, and the process repeats. So basically, like as those tethers move out and spread through the exchange ecosystem, um, more of them end up getting issued so that Bitfinex can continue to offer uh, the ability to arbitrage with them. Uh, what, what raises my eyebrow, though, is that the exchange who, which is receiving the UST is then, it seems as though it's not going to Tether Inc. to get US dollars. Uh, they seem to just be holding on to it, um, which seems unusual from like a risk management perspective. Yeah, so it was asked, you know, like, what, what is your normal level of, uh, you know, tethers that you want to hold? And, um, you know, why, why is it just growing and growing? And actually, they were saying, you know, after the recent correction, that they were actually expecting to decommission to, you know, de-issue a fair number of tethers, because a lot of that demand has dropped off for now. So hopefully, we will see it fluctuating some as the, the markets fluctuate as well. Yeah, and it, uh, th then the other aspect of it is just like the regulatory, like KYC AML aspect of it, where um, you know this this would make sense to me if it was an actual bank issuing this. Um, although even there, like they they would need to know who, who the tethers are being sent to, right? And if tethers they they use the same kind of blockchain that Bitcoin does, right? Um, so it's it's pseudonymous uh, and I I don't I don't want to drag on this conversation for too long, um, but uh, that's that was on my mind as well. Yeah, that question came up as well, and I think the the response was that well, there's AML KYC coming in and going out, and no one controls what's going on in, in once you're just inside the system itself. But uh, yeah, I mean that makes sense from a technical standpoint, from a regulatory and financial compliance standpoint. I have no idea. Yeah, I am not a lawyer. <laughs> Um, it's interesting. Well, okay. So what would you say, uh, other interesting conversations you had at the Satoshi Roundtable uh, really caught your attention? Uh, I know there's been a couple of write-ups now, um, about it, but, uh, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Um, let's see. Wh which ones can I actually talk about <laughs> though? Um, so... We, we there was a lot of talk about security, yeah. um, uh, especially physical security. And, you know, I got to hear some specific examples from some of the more prominent people in, in the space and stuff that they do. And, you know, some of them have, you know, armed guards and uh, armored vehicles and, uh, you know, really go all out uh, because they're in a position where, a, they can afford to spend the money on that type of thing, but B, it makes sense for them to do that. Uh, this is especially the, the people who live in countries that have, you know, higher rates of crime. So, you know, it's nice. Uh, in America, I, I think we, we don't have as many, uh, you know, kidnappings and extortions and, like, organized crime uh, of that nature. So I'm, I'm hopeful that I don't have to worry about that at least anytime soon. But, you know, as this whole ecosystem continues to grow, if there's, there are more like orders of magnitude uh, price appreciation, then that's just going to make people bigger and bigger targets. And the, the more interesting thing that I think we talked about um, was the difference between like the traditionally wealthy people and the crypto wealthy people. 
because you don't really hear about uh, you know billionaires or folks on the Forbes uh, top 500. You don't hear about them you know getting uh, kidnaps and extortions and, and other types of stuff like this. And I think the main reason for that is that their assets are not liquid and you can't really steal large percentages of their wealth because they're just tied up in all types of different things that can't really be stolen. So I think that we should actually learn a lesson from that and figure out you know, how to make our own uh, crypto wealth almost impossible to be stolen, you know, even under duress, you know, if a gun is pointed at your head, you should not be able to transfer 100% of your assets or even a significant portion of your assets. Right. Reducing the liquidity of of your Bitcoins suddenly becomes an important aspect, which uh, generally people think of it in the reverse. Um, Yeah, that, that, that is troublesome. And I think that we, we are fortunate here in the U.S., um, and at the same time, we, we can't be too um, lackadaisical uh, in that regard. Um, th- thankfully, I'm still crypto poor, so I don't have... But the problem is that someone doesn't even necessarily know that, right? Like, they just see, oh, Pierre comments on Bitcoin a lot. He must be like Brock Pierce. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm nowhere near Brock Pierce, okay? <laughs> have I- you tried <laughs> tweeting out that you're not a crypto millionaire? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I had too much student loan debt to pay off to, to, to be in that league, but, uh, they, 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 in their minds, it's not really, uh, it's not really relevant to, to the crime. Right. And these people might not even be necessarily the most intelligent people around. Um, and then the other thing too, though, I, I try to make this point as often as possible because I saw it firsthand when I was working at BitPay and now this is sensitive information, but it's public too because BitPay decided to sue their insurer, and so all of this information become became public. But social engineering is a lot less risky than actually physically physically engineering uh, with a wrench or a, a rubber hose. I think is the uh, the common trope. Um, because it, at the end of the day, if you can be sitting, you know, in your basement in Eastern Europe, uh, sending out phishing emails and trying to get people to click on things. Uh, and at BitPay specifically, you know, they lost a couple of million dollars worth of Bitcoins in 2014, which today obviously is orders of magnitude more. Um, and likewise, um, so that's kind of like the the easy like social engineering phishing attack. Um, but then there's, I think there's more sophisticated ones, which I broadly call scams, uh, where basically someone is uh, sold on an ICO or something else like that. And they voluntarily part with their money uh, without ever having a gun put to their head. Instead, they have a dollar sign put in front of them. You know, it's, it's kind of the carrot and stick in, in the uh, nefarious way. It's a, it's the angler fish, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, a couple thoughts on that. Uh, that's why, you know, you can't just protect your, your crypto assets and your private keys. You have to protect your phone, 
you have to protect your email, you have to put two-factor hardware authentication on every online account that is associated with your identity that supports it. Um, and especially from the phone standpoint, at least in America, apparently there's something stupid about America that makes it so that it's easy for someone to just walk into a phone store and uh, claim to be you with a few pieces of information and, and take over your phone number, steal your identity, and, and now you know be able to use uh, like 2FA reset functionality to get into a lot of your accounts. So uh, I actually recommend Google Fi for phone service because they literally have no stores that anyone can walk into to reset that. They require uh, a pin in order to do any uh, phone porting. So I, I had that exact thing happen to me with Verizon um, where my phone got ported. Thankfully, like as you said, um, I had everything on Google Authenticator, so there wasn't really any SMS uh, things for them to, to get to. And what was really intriguing was the conversation I had a couple of months later with the guy at Verizon who was like the forensic investigator into it. Um, because, you know, you were saying, you know, someone walked into a store and that was the initial story I got from Verizon when uh, when I called them about this. And the investigator was like, that is not what happened. Uh, and they probably he, just called the phone number, right? Well, <laughs> He's he didn't say it directly, but it seemed to imply that this was an inside job by a Verizon employee who had a list and was just working the list. And, uh, you know, that's the other concern is that even with Google Fi now, I'm sure like this is much lower risk at Google Fi than uh, anywhere else. And my my concern were not my concern. My issue with Google Fi is that I'm an Apple Apple fanboy and they only have Android. So that disqualifies me from uh being more secure <laughs> um but yeah the inside job issue is is real uh and it's kind of like uh that's part of crypto anarchy <laughs> that we live in yeah and uh i guess going back to the scams and icos and tokens and whatnot i think one of the more fascinating things of this, you know, seeing how it all plays out is, you know, obviously there's a lot of easy money in the system, uh, mainly because the the hodlers who have been around who have more money than they thought they ever would are now looking to you know get on the next thing, and then also just mainstream media coverage has brought in new entrants who want to get in on the next thing. Um, that has resulted in these you know crazy valuations and people throwing money at projects that there, there's like there's no sane reason that you should entrust the people behind them with that much money and i think that what we're going to see happen is a starvation due to uh, lack of of technical skills where another thing that i talked about in my satoshi roundtable post was the general uh, lack of of uh developer supply in the crypto ecosystem. And so as a result, like all of this money has come into the crypto ecosystem and there's a lag time for developers to get up to speed. So as a result, we've got the, uh, you know, salaries and consulting rates and everything for experienced developers 
basically in a bubble right now. And that will eventually correct, but not until enough supply of talented developers comes into the space. And I think that the various ICOs and projects that are nothing more than a white paper but have tens of millions of dollars are going to find that tens of millions of dollars are not helpful when there's literally no one with the skills uh, available to give the money to to get them to build what you want. And I think that there's an additional like piece to this, which is that there's a difference between someone who's working with an existing blockchain and who is, you know, whether it's maintaining a node or writing, implementing a node uh, and really just trying to uh, work with existing networks. And then someone who's being tasked with architecting and building an entirely new network, which was sold in a white paper and doesn't exist yet. And so that that level of developer talent i would argue like so you've got your like standard web developer and then you've got your blockchain developer who you know they they could uh contribute to bitcoin core and then you've got someone 10x that who could build bitcoin core from scratch without reference to anything else right like and so that person's basically on the level of satoshi if if what they're trying to accomplish is that innovative uh which or you know that 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 seems far fetched to me that any more than like six of those people exist <laughs> uh, within the foreseeable future. But uh, maybe maybe I'm too uh, skeptical about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it takes many years of experience building these types of protocols to get a knack for it and be able to do it in a conservative way where you're not opening up any exploits. And of course, it's it's not a single developer either. Like you know, every developer is going to make mistakes. You have to have a team of developers that are watching each other's backs and preventing them from, um, you know, getting the mistakes any further than the initial code commits, uh, you know, preventing that from getting merged and deployed into production software, because once it gets out there in the wild, you can't take it back. So, um, yeah, those, those level of protocol developers are, uh, really far and in, in few between and have probably been in the crypto space for so long that they don't need a salary. And so you, you're not going to be able to convince them to work for you, probably for any level of money. It's it's going to be more ideological. You have to capture their interest. Right. And so for, for these ICOs that are like healthcare records on the blockchain, I mean, good luck finding a cypherpunk who's ideologically motivated to create a system that, you know, advertises itself as being decentralized, but at the end of the day, it's probably unlikely to be, uh, and is it would probably be an anti-pattern if it were. Um, so it's really, uh, or like Dentacoin, like I, I don't know who is excited about uh, improving the world of dentistry, but... Uh, they got to find a developer and uh, pay them to at least uh, put up some effort, some level of effort and make it appear as though they're trying to deliver on on these promises that they sold investors on. But, yeah, I I think that your 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 argument about uh, this being death by starvation is, is probably accurate if they even get to that. Right. Like if they even intended to ever hire anyone rather than just walking away and, uh, you know, taking the money with them, which I think is it's got to be at least a third of the ICOs. Uh, the intent was just marketing and then uh, we ghost. 
Yeah, um, you know, or pump and dump scams, or, or who knows what. Um, but you know, I can't even keep up with them anymore. So I'm I'm focusing on on Bitcoin and uh, you know trying to build on it as a platform rather than trying to make the crypto universe even more complicated. So uh, are you are, do you have some lap ideas in mind? That uh, what kind of side projects do you have in the pipeline? Uh, side projects. I mean, the last project that I did was the Bitcoin core config generator. Um, and that was mainly because I was keeping track of how many different configuration options there are and it keeps going up and up. And, uh, and I kept having to answer questions for people of like, how do I set up a node that can run on a raspberry Pi or that can run on tour or whatever. Um, I do have another project that I started and has languished for many months, um, and that actually is a throwback. It combines some of my earlier skills with cloud computing and MapReduce um, job writing, where I would like to create a a MapReduce framework where you can throw the raw block uh, data files into this MapReduce job and have it basically build the entire UTXO set and build a fully indexed, uh, you know, Bitcoin uh, database, because that's what I've been working on for the past few years at BitGo is you know indexing services and and those. Uh, there are ways to make it multi-threaded, but you still basically have to start from the beginning and go the way to the end so that you're tracking all of the UTXOs uh, in and out. But I believe that it would be possible to create a multi-phase MapReduce job where uh, with some of my initial testing that I was doing a few months ago, I think that you could get it to a point where you could build an entire um, indexed perspective of the Bitcoin blockchain in less than 20 minutes and you could just uh, throw more mappers and reducers at the job as the blockchain gets larger and larger and so you know we're at the point now where the blockchain is around like 170 gigs and so it's still manageable but if we're looking at this from a very long-term perspective then we are going to want to have ways to destroy and rebuild you know fully indexed perspectives of the blockchain at a much more rapid pace wow (laughs) <laughs> so okay, so let's let's dig into that because uh, you know currently uh, Bitcoin Core, you there's a flag for a transaction index, right? To have that index be built, and so essentially for our audience out there, what that entails is that you can then query Bitcoin Core for a specific transaction ID, and it will bring back the data for that. Uh, and are you what you're talking about is an address index? Yes, I'm talking about slicing and dicing it up in as many different ways as possible. Uh, you know, um, UTXO age, uh, you know, the date fields, uh, size attributes, fees, like every aspect of a transaction that you can figure out pro- programmatically and then have that indexed and easily queryable. Okay, awesome. Uh, and so this, but this is, uh, right now you've got a, a proof of concept uh, f- for that and then would you be able to create a, like, I know Satoshi uses Grafana, but what kind of interface then would you be able to use for the UI? Yeah, well, I mean, if you were doing an interface, it would probably be similar to any block explorer. But I think that this type of project would be more interesting to anyone 
who uh, runs a large-scale wallet or other service, um, or Block Explorer, like really anyone who needs to have the ability to query for Bitcoin data by things that are more interesting than just the hash of a block or a transaction. And that, that happens a lot if you're running a wallet. Uh, so, for example, uh, at Bitco, we have a lot of different um, indexes on UTXOs, and that's because we have fairly complex UTXO selection algorithms, and they're looking at a number of different things. This reminds me of the uh, BlockSci uh, project, which I think was built by um, the guys out of Princeton. Um, and they, they presented on this at Scaling Bitcoin, but basically doing that with um, the Python library called Pandas uh, to allow scientists to dig into the blockchain and query things differently. So this sounds like a... And I think they're using a graph database for that, if I'm correct. So, so yeah, my, my, uh, my, I guess, idea is even more on the, like, the first stage of that, where then you could plug and play like, what type of database uh, you want to actually put the data into. The hard part is just ingesting the, the data quickly and then constructing all the transactions and UTXOs. And then once you get to that like current state of the Bitcoin system, then you can say, okay, I want to store this in a graph database or MySQL or Mongo or HBase or you know whatever uh, floats your boat for your particular right. application. And I, okay, so now just when, when you were describing at the beginning of the episode uh, that uh, you were able to get your node to sync in, what was it, like 20 minutes? Uh, not quite that fast, 152 minutes. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, so two hours, let's call it two yeah. and a half hours. Um, couldn't it also, during those two and a half hours, be making calls to a database and dumping the data as it's working through it and um, doing things in real time like that? Or would that slow it down way too much? Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's two different ways, I guess, to think about it. Of like, would you want the node itself to be throwing data out somewhere, or do you want something else to be ingesting the data? And so, all of uh, the indexer services that we have at BitGo, and we have uh, a couple different versions that we've written over the years, they're all you know listening to nodes and and querying them for data and pulling data out of them. Though you can you know set up a node where every time a block or a transaction comes in, it you know, makes a call out to some other script. So you, know, you can trigger or you can listen and ingest. Um, either way, like, that's, that's still a, a fairly linear progression though, where uh, Bitcoin Core will go out and, and grab blocks asynchronously and sort of queue them up, but it still has to go through each block and each transaction in order. Um, in order to actually make sure that all of the rules have been followed. So uh, I don't think that Bitcoin Core or any of the nodes like at the that particular level would, would ever really be fully parallelized. It just becomes a very different problem. Gotcha. Because so the reason you can do out of order is because you're not doing validation at the same time. Yeah. You're, you're assuming valid. <laughs> Uh, okay, very interesting. And uh, so you're operating a wide variety of nodes at BitGo. How many different altcoins are you guys supporting? Is that public? Uh, let's see. So Bitcoin, 
the only forks that we have are B Cash and B Gold. We we do have Litecoin, um, which was easy, uh, and then Ripple, and then Ethereum and various ERC twenty tokens and. The bulk of my time recently has actually been spent uh, babysitting the Ethereum nodes. They have been just stalling and, and falling over and having a lot of operational issues. And I, I think I, sp I wrote about that uh, recently, some of the infrastructure issues there. I've also had a number of issues with uh, Ripple nodes, like just from a performance standpoint. But both Ripple and Ethereum um, on an operational standpoint, tend to have issues with disk I/O, and you know you could say, well, that's because they're getting popular, right? So um, there, there is a a good argument to be made for having these like global limits on the networks, because at the end of the day, it turns into like real resource consumption for someone who is running the nodes, and. Uh, it just seems from my experience that amongst all of these really popular networks that are having scaling issues, the only one that isn't, you know, having suffered from like performance degradation at the node level is Bitcoin. So, well, let's let's get political then. I mean, wouldn't it be the case that everyone can just run an SPV wallet and we only need very few services that will have uh, well, a $2,500 uh, piece of hardware with uh, uh, a solid-state drive that's cutting edge, uh, and we'll just connect our SPV wallet. I mean, that'll that'll get you, you know, maybe 10x growth. But um, I do have an article I wrote last year where I did a lot of the math, and uh, let's see, that article was called like, "Can uh, SPV scale Bitcoin to a billion users?" And what I was basically showing there is that. One the the math that most of people gloss over when they're saying that SPV can scale is they're only doing the math from the perspective of the SPV client itself, and yes, those are highly efficient. Um, you know, they use on the order of you know kilobytes of bandwidth and and you know hundreds of uh, of. CPU cycles, which is basically nothing, you know, in order to, to verify a transaction. But if you switch around and you look at it from the node's perspective that has to serve those SPV requests, it's actually having to go through and read all of the data in the blocks, in the blockchain that the SPV clients are requesting and saying, hey, do I have any transactions here? Do I have any transactions here? Do I have any transactions here? And so it's a very you know, asymmetric uh, performance where it, it scales very well on the SPV client end. It scales very terribly on the node slash server end. Gotcha. And so the... The, the point there then is that uh, either uh, you need to have web wallets where uh, you've got a trusted third party, right? Or um, that, that would be a, another way to scale where you just sidestep that issue uh, and you just have Coinbase run one node um, and you rely on that. But uh, that doesn't, what would be your problem with that solution? Yeah, I mean, it's, pretty uh, easy to you know scale up web applications we've we've had you know decades of experience doing that and there's a lot of technologies that are built for that but um, 
you're, you're kind of, you know, you're regressing the model once again, where like we were talking about earlier, uh, the centralized exchanges are creating systemic risk, both from a security standpoint and just from a usability standpoint of, you know, everybody going, trying to get through, uh, you know, one little bottleneck that you've created. So we, we want to see these systems be as dispersed as possible. We also want people to be able to get the best security model uh, that Bitcoin can offer if they want it. Uh, sure, I mean, the vast majority of people are not going to run full nodes and may not even ever know what a full node is, If we especially if we go mainstream. I mean, they, they may not even be... Um, understanding that they're using Bitcoin in certain cases, it'll it'll be shoved so far down under the hood. But we want the the technology to be accessible to as many people uh, as possible and give them the option to run a node and to have the best security model if that's really what interests them. Right. Uh, and it, the security model in terms of verifying transactions coming in, that that they are valid per the consensus rules that you are a subscriber to, right? Essentially, um, and so in that regard, if if Coinbase was the one running their own node, they get to decide what Bitcoin is for you on your behalf, uh, without you really ever having a say in it. Um, whereas, uh, if you're running your own full node. Uh, you are a member of the consensus that you want to be a member of, uh, which hopefully is called Bitcoin. But I have nothing against people who want to call it Bcash or uh, Bitgold or whatever. Um, I, so I wanted to jump back, actually, as my last question. Uh, you mentioned that you're, you're running these different nodes and you have to run a node for each ERC-20 token? Right? Uh, no, actually we don't. And uh, we, we managed to set up our indexer for Ethereum in such a way where um, it's, it's pretty efficient on the indexer side of things where we, we're ingesting every transaction that comes into an Ethereum block, but we're just looking for fingerprints, basically. We're looking for fingerprints of uh, BitGo's multi-sig smart contract. We're looking for fingerprints of ERC-20 tokens. And then if we see something that looks like it might be interesting, it might belong to a BitGo wallet, then we're actually making various API calls to our own service to say, hey, is this actually a BitGo wallet? But uh, from the token standpoint, um, we have the ERC-20 functionality built into the BitGo multi-sig smart contract. So it's, it's all like technically in the same wallet, you know, same private keys. Um, it's just using different functionality within the Ethereum protocol. So as a result, we use the same indexer and we just, you know, set a new balance that says, you know, this token balance is X. Got it. And is it the case that like, it's having all of these uh, ERC-20 tokens inside of Ethereum. Is that contributing to the performance issues for the Ethereum node? Definitely just from the standpoint that the Ethereum network is a lot busier now. And, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know the protocol quite at the level to say, like, what the performance of, you know, running and validating an ERC-20 smart contract is versus other stuff. Though um, my understanding is that, like, our multi-sig smart contract in general is pretty heavyweight, and we are looking at a few ways to, to try to make it, uh, you know... Uh, 
less pricey from gas terms, you know, in order to execute various functionality within it. But the the nodes themselves, uh, they've just been having a lot of performance issues and part of that, you know, is because we are running like full archive nodes. We're not doing the like warp sync or anything else like that. You know, we want to make sure that we're doing full validation. And, uh, and also it's just that the Ethereum nodes, they're updating so much state, you know, blocks are coming in every 17 seconds or so in, in these full blocks have, you know, a hundred plus transactions and they're they're just doing so much uh, reads and writes from the um, the disk that you know a spinning disk doesn't really cut it anymore. You need to have preferably a solid state disk so that you have enough IOPS on it, and it, it becomes kind of ironically a problem because IOPS are cheap at a consumer level where you can just buy a solid state disk and get a lot of uh, of IOPS. But at the, the virtual private server level, which is what a lot of enterprises are going to be using, their you know, cloud computing, uh, disk IOPS are insanely expensive. And I'm not entirely sure why that is, but you know, as a result, we end up spending like thousands of dollars a month to run an Ethereum node that is, is performant um, on, on like Amazon Web Services, for example. Yeah, maybe they price it like a restaurant prices alcohol. You know, it's like they're where they make their money, uh, but they make everything else look a little less expensive. Um, so yeah, you're gonna have to be running your own bare metal if you want to uh, do that. Uh, be an Ethereum full node in a cost-effective manner. Yep. All right, this has been a lot of fun. Lob, uh, thanks for coming on. Where can people reach you? Where can people find you on the internet? Well, I'm most uh, prolific on Twitter, and my handle is Lop, L-O-P-P. And once you get there, you can easily get to my other various properties. But I have a website at lop.net where I have all of the content I've ever created, videos, interviews, presentations, and uh, also educational resources of basically everything that I think is interesting and worth reading within the ecosystem. Yeah, so if you go to lop.net slash Bitcoin, I yep. think it is, uh, and you are you, you might be a developer or honestly, you might even just you might not even be a developer yet, but you want to learn how to program. Go on Codecademy, learn some programming languages, go to lop.net slash Bitcoin, start reading as much as you can uh, because there is a real developer shortage out there. So I would highly encourage people to start getting involved and you got to start somewhere. Granted, you know, the, the best time to start is yesterday. Second best time is today. Uh, by by no means is it too late. I, I think that people might have like this misconception that it's, it's quote unquote too late. Like uh, crypto is going to continue growing. Uh, the the fundamentals haven't changed, even if the price is down sixty percent over the past month or whatever it may be. Um, it's still uh, a very strong wave uh, that's occurring. So anyway, thanks, Jameson. It was a lot of fun, and uh, I hope to have you back on at some point. Great. Thanks for having me. Chairman Giancarlo. Uh, thank you, Chairman Crapo, Ranking Member Brown, and distinguished members of the committee. I've submitted a written statement for the record that details the CFTC's work and authority over virtual currencies. But with your permission, I'd like to get, begin briefly with a slightly different perspective, and that is as a dad. 
I'm the father of three college-age children, a senior, a junior, and a freshman. During their high school years, we tried to interest them in financial markets. My wife and I set up small brokerage accounts with a few hundred dollars that they could use to buy stocks. Yet other than my youngest son, who owns shares in a video game company, we haven't been able to pique their interest in the stock market. I guess they're not much different than most kids their age. Well, something changed in the last year. Suddenly, they were all talking about Bitcoin. They were asking me what I thought and should they buy it. One of their older cousins, who owns Bitcoin, was telling them about it and they got all excited. And I imagine that maybe members of this committee may have some, had some similar experiences in your own families of late. It strikes me that we owe it to this new generation to respect their enthusiasm about virtual currencies with a thoughtful and balanced response, not a dismissive one. Thank you, Chairman Giancarlo. And I'll uh, begin the questioning. Um, first, I will say I've had those dinner conversations with my own children, and you're right. Uh, this is an incredibly interesting but uh, growing new area of uh, financial challenge, particularly among our, at least my children and yours. 